So maybe to start off with, you're a New York native. You grew up on Staten Island. Uh, Brooklyn. Brooklyn. Why did I think it was Staten Island? I'm offended. We got to redo this. We got to redo this part. (laughs) This podcast series is presented by Archetype. Archetype is an early stage venture capital fund focused on backing crypto entrepreneurs who are working to accelerate the decentralized future. We lead investments in C-stage companies and are always open to speaking with crypto native founders. For more information on our team and portfolio, go to archetype.fund. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Archibite. I'm Ash Egan, founder here at Archetype. Today, I'm joined by my good friend and Archetype's newest partner, Dimitri Berenzen. Dimitri, welcome. Great to be here. First podcast I'm doing in person, actually. They're always better in person. Yeah. Today, we're going to talk about a lot of different things. Before we jump in, it would be awesome to hear a little bit about your background and what you were doing before joining the team here at Archetype. Yeah, for sure. So started my career in traditional finance, uh, worked for a bank for six years, first four doing a variety of strategy roles, last two building out their innovation labs. Heard about Bitcoin in 2013 when I was doing research for the bank set of payments, did a proof of concept with the labs in 2016, ultimately took me until end of 2017 when I was in Berkeley for grad school, uh, where I finally had my aha moment, uh, met the blockchain Berkeley folks uh, who are these 18-year-old galaxy brains, uh, individually very inspiring, but they also had this good course on Bitcoin, more from a distributed systems and game theoretic perspective. I looked at it from the lens of DeFi. Uh, kind of saying that the last 30 years of fintech innovation was lipstick on a pig, you know, pretty front end on top of 1970s rails. And at least with Ethereum, you have 2015 rails. So was really all in since then. Uh, worked on a startup for about a year, portfolio management tool and robo-advisor. Ended up sunsetting that and working with a fund called CoinFund out of New York doing research and DD. Uh, super fun. Um, ultimately wanted some more responsibility. So joined a crypto family office to lead research and investments there for two years called Bollinger Investment Group. Did around 25 investments with the firm. Small checks, you know, 50, 100K. What I particularly learned there was I enjoy working with founders, um, had the opportunity to join a larger fund who did more lead, co-lead. So I uh, joined 1KX uh, just about three years ago. I had a great time there, you know, was doing research, investment, due diligence, portfolio support, probably bending more on the infrastructure side of things. And yeah, really got to see what an S-curve looks like for a fund and kind of what works and, 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 and doesn't work. And, you know, now have the opportunity to do it again with you. And I'm psyched about it. You're a New York native. You grew up in Brooklyn. You've lived the last few years in the greater San Francisco Bay Area. You're in New York for some amount of time here with the team in person. Maybe just to start, like the ecosystem in SF, you know, we met back in 2017 and it felt like SF was the epicenter, you know, coming here to New York here in 2024. Like, Give us a rundown on the New York versus SF ecosystem. Are these the most talented places to build and invest crypto companies and protocols? Yeah, why don't we start off there? I think largely, yes. I mean, there's macro issues, I suppose, with being in the U.S., but I think both ecosystems are exciting. I think the benefit of the Bay Area is you have the effectively constant annual emission of galaxy brains coming out of Berkeley and Stanford. And that is tough to compete with. I think they are great institutions. You know, I've been 
kind of shocked at how developed the New York ecosystem has been. I used to run fintech meetups here, you know, back in 2015. And, you know, it was hobbyists, a lot of people wearing, you know, suits and ties. There were the consensus folks, I suppose, in Bushwick, but there wasn't a gravity of founders. And I think there were a couple of path-dependent events that happened. I think COVID was you know, definitely one one issue. Um, I think when you look at innovation ecosystems historically, usually they need a certain success story to look at. This happened in Berlin with things like Rocket Internet, where the German culture is more conservative. And I think, you know, looking at Rocket Internet made it less taboo for people to get into e-commerce. And I think historically, New York has been number two, I suppose, like not as competitive. Uh, when you look at kind of which startups are successful, you know, maybe MongoDB on the deep tech side, Etsy on the e-commerce side. But the difference with crypto is I think we have Uniswap and OpenSea here. And I think that provides a very powerful flywheel. And I think it worked. You know, when I came here, even just visiting in 2021, I was shocked, even relative to me spending uh, some time here in, in 2018. You know, the gravity of founders and investors here, it has staying power. I always like to call Spring Street Crypto Alley, just given the concentration of crypto startups, venture capital firms, and ecosystem folks. Maybe just comparing New York City 2024 versus San Francisco 2017 when we met. Do you think... New York City is in a similar spot to where San Francisco was in 2017 in the crypto lens? It's hard to say. I think the beauty of what was happening in San Francisco around 2017 was the uh, Crypto Economic Security Conference, CSC. It was organized. I mean, a fund that's probably no longer operational, Decrypt Capital, it was a lot of the blockchain Berkeley folks that was just around the last bull cycle. And that was really powerful. After CSC, I think the, you know, now it's called the Science of Blockchain Conference. You know, that was around probably since 2017, 2018. It, uh, it still goes on now. I think those are really powerful events because it's kind of a no-shill zone or it really tries yep. to be a no-shill zone. I think CSC happened a year or two ago, and they have submissions. It's white papers. There's a committee that reviews them. I think that is powerful. I was surprised, pleasantly surprised, I suppose, that SBC is going to be in, in New York this year. So it seems to be that there is more academic rigor, which I think is great. You know, I think what New York probably needs is more horsepower on the distributed system side of things. And I think once you start to have the more hardcore academic conferences, and there's Cornell IC3, I suppose, that happens here too, might be upstate New York. But I think having more of that gravity happen in New York City proper, it'll attract more of the technical founders. And, and I think that's probably been more of a weaker spot historically, but it looks like that's changing. Yeah, I think those are great insights. Zooming out to the maybe feature, maybe bug, cyclical nature of crypto. We're coming off, I don't want to say max pain, but a two-year span of banking events, FTX, Terra Luna, 
just a lot of craziness. And it feels like we're pre-bowl. We're not full bowl, but you just sense the amount of optimism in the air in early 2024. What are you most excited about for 2024? Like, what do you think are things that are going to be happening that really come to fruition, whether it's the same stuff we've seen historically, rise of new L1s, you know, more depth around the consumer application layer, middleware types of entrepreneurs, like give us a rundown on what we should be on the lookout for for 2024. Yeah, I think... Cycles aren't bad. I think cycles and and speculations and bubbles, it is a side effect, I suppose, of innovation. I think in crypto, because everything is highly financialized, you do get quite painful deleveraging events. At every cycle, you see these wars, I suppose. And it happened with L1s. And then I think we're probably seeing this with L2s and other execution layers. And I think we're we're probably going to see this with data availability layers kind of splitting out more of like the transition to modular infrastructure. But I think, you know, since probably 2017, 2018, there has been a lot of infrastructure built. And I think, you know, last year, there was also more of a focus for infrastructure for UX as well as the you know infrastructure for scalability finally coming online. And I think we're at a place today where I think we have the puzzle pieces in place to actually support more large-scale applications on the consumer side. And by large scale, it's hundreds of thousands to millions of users at reasonable fees. And I think that's something that was not available in the last cycle. Yeah. And you put that together with better on-ramps, account abstraction, better wallet infrastructure, and I think now we have also more consumer awareness and I'm excited to see now that these pieces are are finally live what we can actually bring to market on the application side. Yeah. Feels like in the COVID era with everyone glued to their computer screen, you had just more eyeballs more experimentation. And it felt like we crossed the chasm. In hindsight, you know, generalized L2s were just getting off the ground. uh, If we look back to 21 and, and 22. And now you have a lot of this infrastructure, high throughput, low cost in the form of L2s. A lot of this infrastructure has gotten built out. You're a highly technical entrepreneur who wants to build crypto infra. What do you build today? Are we actually in the late innings of what the crypto infra stack looks like or early innings? I think we're late innings on scalability and early innings on UX in the sense that I think we have enough scalability to usher in another flavor of innovation and that cycle will continue to uh, to pendulum. I think what is still missing is better on-ramps, off-ramps, abstraction. I think we're seeing this with embedded wallets and what Privy is doing I think is great. I think that experience needs to be collapsed. I think for more of the entrance today, still think it's difficult. And it's interesting because this is not 
a new topic. It seems like we've been talking about, yeah. you know, private key management for so long, you know, years. But I think it's still not there yet. You know, I think 4337, you know, in the Ethereum world, I think is an interesting evolution. When you look at the usage metrics, I think it's still quite paltry. It's it's is definitely an improvement, but you probably need to ask yourself why is 4337 not being adopted? You know, when you look at the volume that bundlers and paymasters are doing, why is that still in the low like double digits, three digits? So so I think that is still not there yet. So so we need to ask ourselves like how can we get that better? Yeah, I think that's a good way of framing it. Like scalability, well, who you know, who knows? Like, are we at the point where you can build decentralized Facebook, decentralized Uber? Feels like we're getting close. It's hard to say exactly, but I think framing as infrastructure around UX, UI, making these things more usable, I think that makes a ton of sense. Yeah, like there's a debate on how much crypto do you abstract? And right. and a lot right. of the crypto OGs are uh, saying, you know, no, you need to feel the pain. We of, like tokens. Of crypto, yeah. Yeah, and, and I think there's another flavor of people that say to an end user, crypto should be indistinguishable from a Web2 application. And I'm, I'm more of the latter. I think you can embed tokens in, in applications. I think the most difficult part is, I suppose, the custodying of those tokens, which is why I like projects that are trying to use email, socials as a way to uh, a spin up, even if it's a custodial wallet, somewhere to access the tokens. And then you have a funnel by which you have people who, who come for the tech, stay for the tokens. I think that is, for better or for worse, the way you hit more mainstream. And and when you look at a lot of these crypto UIs, I mean, you look at the curve UI, still crazy to think like, how is that ever going to be mainstream? looks like, you know, Something that was done in 1994, and and I know like they did it for a certain aesthetic and for a certain yeah. uh, user group, but I do not think the next cohort of you know millions of people are gonna onboard onto something that just feels so unsafe, I suppose, and so non-intuitive to use. You know, I think the crypto developers that are coming in, I think, have more of a focus on on UX, but yeah, that's still in evolution. I have this internal battle always. It's like, do we build the crypto native audience or do we just abstract all this stuff? And there's some categories like NFTs where, and tokens come in many shapes and sizes, but NFTs, you know, like the floor price and just the price of NFTs front and center. It's going to be tough to abstract those kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. But I think you can go after a crypto native audience with good UX. Yeah. The blur UX is really good. And they spent a lot of time A-B testing, you know, what works and what doesn't work. And it just goes back to, you know, product management fundamentals and design fundamentals that I think the early cohort of crypto builders didn't pay attention to, which is fine. But I think there's more experts in the room nowadays, at least the people from, you know, the FANG companies that are more excited to get into crypto today. And I think they can level up a lot of what the yeah. what, what the UX is. Yeah, yeah. So at 1KX, one of the investments that you led was in Pudgy Penguins. And it feels like Pudgy has done both building a great crypto native audience, but also crossing the chasm with toys and various outlets. Do you think that model of addressing the crypto native crowd, but also being able to cross the chasm will be the new 
strategy for entrepreneurs building these NFT collections or consumer more broadly? Yeah, it was interesting. I know that we made that decision along with Peter and, and, and Chris and Michael and the team. It, it was contentious, I suppose, when we also spoke to other investors. I mean, first and foremost, what was exciting to us was Luca as really the force of nature. And I think he was, he is very inspiring and he is really, he has the face of a movement, I suppose. And I think that is very important in a more consumer project with, with, it's a different demographic, I suppose, than, than your usual DeFi traders. I think the approach is different. It depends on whether you're looking at PFPs or as gen art, right. you know, in the NFT sector, you know, because it becomes more uh, complex over time. Uh, for gen art, I don't think you need to do the same strategy that Pudgy did. I think for a lot of gen art projects, their goal is to become a store of value. So what they want is to, you know, be in, in, in Sotheby's auctions. And I don't think they need any real world presence. They just need to be in the mind share of the collector base and to make sure that is a growing cohort, which I think it is of more traditional art collectors looking at gen art as a store of value. With the PFPs, I think a lot of the benefits of PFPs is around giving people a feeling of belonging. And there's really interesting cohorts that are dependent on the PFP. And, you know, you could talk to the founders, get a sense of who the collectors are, and they are very different personas. And the persona I think that Pudgy was targeting, part of why it was exciting is because it was relatively untapped, I suppose, like the folks that they were targeting, you know, maybe more female skewed, maybe younger. And a lot of their channel and distribution strategies were supporting that. You know, they had a big focus on memes and, and, and GIFs and being present on TikTok. And the physical assets, I think, like work for them because you might want to gift, you know, a plushie to your, your cousin's daughter, you know, for, for, for Christmas. And I, I think it need not be the strategy of every PFP. I think it probably depends, you know, for these projects, they need to think about, what is their target persona on the demand side and be very specific, which a lot of crypto projects, they don't do that exercise, but, you know, is it male, female, between what ages, what demographics, what do they do in their free time? What do they like to do on the weekends? How can you craft a holistic strategy to actually target that group and give them a way to, to kind of feel a sense of belonging? And I think the, the real world assets are interesting because it gives an additional source of revenue, I suppose. You know, they're they're and just brand recognition. Yeah. Yeah. And and with PFPs, I think like that's the name of the game. Yeah. You know, how yeah. can you get as many eyeballs on this thing as possible? Yeah. It's hard to make blanket statements on what the perfect type of approach is, right? Whether it's like skewing more crypto native, like trying to cross the chasm. But I, I think for both, like you have this sense of, you mentioned building a movement, you're almost like manufacturing memes to an extent. And for things that are more tangible, maybe jumping into Deepin and Deven, you spent a lot of time these last few weeks, you know, really surveying the landscape there. And we've talked quite extensively about it. What are, you know, sort of the founders that are going to really break out in D-Pin and D-Vent, like how should they be thinking around manufacturing these memes or creating that kind of movement that we talked about? That's a really interesting question. 
for the listeners, DPIN, Decentralized Physical Infrastructure Networks, DVIN. It's a flavor, it's a categorization, Decentralized Virtual Infrastructure Networks, with the difference is that with DVINs, you're thinking about things around storage, compute, bandwidth. These are typically fungible resources and they're not geographical in nature. For the D-pins, this is more around wireless, geospatial, mobility. These tend to be more non-fungible, and they do have a geographic dependence. So I think a lot of the crypto folks are more familiar with, you know, like the file coins of the world. And maybe more recently, things like Helium on the D-pin wireless side has gotten a lot of eyeballs. I haven't thought about how to marry those two. It's super interesting. When I think about why, you know, what the thesis is behind D-pins, D-pins, let's just call it D-pins. It is that you can use tokens to bootstrap the supply side. And I think Helium was almost like the compound moment for D-pin where the success of that supply side was inspiring for a lot of what I think, you know, electrical engineering PhDs, nerds to say, oh, hey, maybe I can do this for my piece of infrastructure. What I think about is what is the Venn diagram between the individuals who are buying these pieces of hardware? You know, uh, it can be like dash cams in the case of high mapper, radio stations in the case of WeatherXM. Why are they doing that? How crypto native are they? Are there weird ways to to bootstrap or to to further grow the supply side there? Does it make sense to release some kind of you know PFP collection for these individuals who are bootstrapping the supply side? On the demand side, I think that's been typically the issue. That would be a really cool area to experiment. You know, like can you yeah. have a way to help penetrate the demand side with a feeling of belonging where where maybe they are not only using the service because it's cheaper, because I think that's a difficult vector to compete on over the long term, but are they using it because they get a sense of belonging from being in a community with others who who, who use that? Yeah. I think that'll be an interesting angle to experiment with. Yeah, I think back to lower school and like the flex. Well, first off, how... I walked into a classroom and I saw one of my classmates with a Game Boy, the little Game Boys, Game Boy Advance. And I was like, I want one of those. And eventually convinced my parents to buy me one. And I felt like I was part of a collective there, you know, and then with Pokemon and all these games, like it felt like a movement. Just recently you had the rabbit, you know, hardware device where it feels like there's a similar kind of craze and almost flex for hardware. And so, yeah, look, maybe there is something at the intersection of creating a movement or creating this sense of belonging associated with these deep end networks. And I don't know what it is exactly, but that's where we're doing this. We're just riffing on stuff. We haven't talked about this before. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really cool. Uh, it's almost as if hardware has become cool again. Yeah. And I, I forget who said this, but someone said, you know, if you are serious about building good software, then, then you build your own hardware. And I think we're seeing a trend there. To have hardware as a flex, I think, is a very interesting phenomenon. Maybe we're actually seeing this with the Solana Saga phone. Yeah. You know, I just pre-ordered the new one. So maybe like there's a part of that where I can see someone at a conference and, and say, oh, like you have the new Saga, so do I. You know, yep. and then I have a sense of belonging with the other 
saga phone holders. You know, yeah. like that's not, I suppose, traditionally how how we might think of Deepin, but I do consider that as as you know within that category. And not in the Deepin category, but like one area that feels ripe for tangible plus a movement is the emerging category of digiphysicals. And I hate that name, but, you know, uh, companies like Endstate where you can buy these sneakers and you have an NFC chip where, you know, there's an NFT associated with that physical item. You know, you have sneakers. We're starting to see more rounds, different kinds of apparel. Maybe this is an area where you can combine sort of the physical nature with this sense of belonging, a movement of sorts. Yeah, I'm curious if you have any thoughts there. Yeah, totally. I prefer digiphysical much more to fidgetal. Fidgetal is terrible. That's that's way worse. Yeah. I do think it is almost like a Trojan horse into crypto adoption. And, you know, it's kind of related to the conversation around real world assets I think part of the issue historically with RWA adoption is that, you know, like these are more financialized. Uh, It was things like receivables financing Mm -hmm. and the persona of individuals who want to invest in that and the institutions who want to put that more on chain. They're just slower, you know, and, and, and they're more risk averse. I also see a chip on a sneaker as a real world asset, but the buyer of that is typically... Uh, much younger, much more open to experimentation. And it's interesting that there's more willingness to pay for these physical assets, particularly in the fashion uh, space where if they have, you know, one of these chips, there's a greater willingness to pay. And if you take that to a logical conclusion, then you'll have hundreds of thousands, millions of these different articles of clothing that have some connectivity to being on chain, that's actually more real RWA adoption yep. than, yep. than what we initially thought as what are RWAs. I'm also excited about what comes from the world of digiphysicals because like you, you got to think Foursquare 2.0 is like the next logical move with, I mean, sure, you could use your phone to check into places, but what if you didn't have to do anything? And you had these quests, and I think of Pokemon Go, like the craze that was around finding these Pokemon. I was living in Boston at the time, and people were like in these parks running over children to try to capture Pokemon. In a world where these NFC chips, you know, are communicating geo and like where people are and you can have these like almost mini games and like real world experiences powered by digiphysicals any thoughts on that or am i is this a world that's like 10 years away not a few years away no i think you know objects in the mirror are are closer than they might appear when you combine that also with token incentives and kind of yeah, the we idea saw that we step in to an extent. Yeah. It's a very powerful mechanism for doing large scale human coordination. And so if you put those things together, I think there's some really interesting entropy that can happen. Yeah. Who knows? But could be cool. Yeah. Hard pivot here. And I'd say the most hotly contested topic on crypto Twitter let's call it over the last few years, the modular versus monolithic infra debate. How should people think around how this stuff plays out? 
And that's a broad question, but I'm framing it that way purposefully for you to take a stab at it. Yeah. I mean, I think in that context, the usual conversation is when you split out, you know, Ethereum was actually monolithic itself. Yeah. And then you split that out and you have your execution layer, your settlement layer, and your data availability layer. And the form factor for a lot of the separate execution layers are your rollups and all of the different flavors of your validiums and, and, uh, and things like that. And then you have on the other side, the argument, you know, Solana is your, your fully integrated kind of monolithic chain. And a lot of folks say, you know, the benefit there is better UX, cheaper. I've heard, you know, mimetically people refer to monolithic as being more of the Apple and modular as being more of the Android, you know, so, so I, I'm more on the modular side of things as almost an inevitability in open source. I think developers often gravitate to customization and specialization for their own needs. And if you do believe in ideas around application-specific rollups and giving applications the choice to say, what components do I want on-chain, off-chain? Do I want to share block space? I think it kind of like pushes you to having more diversity. And... I think when you look at Solana, it's also becoming modular. It it almost doesn't have a choice. When you look at something like Eclipse that uses the Solana SVM, but its flavor is an Ethereum rollup, you know, so it uses Ethereum for settlement. I think that's one flavor of being modular. You know, I've heard other anecdotes of people saying, you know, I think Solana is the best execution layer and and Ethereum is the best settlement layer. I'm not saying I agree with it, but it does point to saying, you know, in a fully, assuming a fully open source environment, developers will kind of gravitate often to the thing that does the job better. And I think there are also a lot of improvements that are coming, attempts at improving the EVM, and there might be some success with different flavors there. And I think whether we like it or not, I think the entropy around developer adoption kind of pushes us to uh, ultimately choice. And I think it's hard to avoid a market structure in an open source environment where we just have three, four, five different flavors, you know, yeah. and, and if there is enough developers across enough use cases, I think that natural fragmentation just happens. Yeah. It's interesting where in 2018, with the ETH2 roadmap that Vitalik put out, rollups weren't really part of the discussion at the time. It was around sharding, and it, Ethereum was still a monolithic blockchain. This is pre-proof of stake 2018. And there was a mindset shift by Vitalik and the EF. And I don't know what it was exactly. I've heard some of it was influenced by Polkadot, maybe by Cosmos, but evolving to more of this modular type approach. I do wonder, is that an evolution that, you know, leading monolithic chain in Solana is going to go through in itself? It's a good question. I I truly don't know the answer to that. I haven't spoken to yeah. Vitalik about it. You know, I think part of the issue, you know, minor setting is charting is difficult. And I think you can get a lot of the benefits 
of that architecture, but just focusing on uh, execution. And there were other ideas around plasma and a lot of the yeah the the unknown unknowns state channels. I suppose. Yep. We'll see. I think I think Solana is really trying to to kind of stay as integrated as possible. And I think their focus, I believe, is on, you know, how do you send value at, you know, a hundredth of a penny? And what are the trade-offs that you need to get there? And maybe there's trade-offs on the decentralization spectrum and maybe socially that's fine. But I think to really see what breaks at scale, I think to see whether an integrated approach will work or not, you probably need to add a couple of orders of magnitude of users and and, right. uh, and transactions. And I think like that's the real difference here between vertical and horizontal scaling, because that's the difference. You know, I think the Solana approach is largely, you know, increase the node requirements and the bandwidth requirements, and the Ethereum approach is more horizontal, where you just add more machines to the network that can do the execution itself. Yeah. The fun part about investing and being a part of this industry is like, there's no right answer. And you have very different trains of thoughts focused on their particular ecosystem. I think that's one thing I absolutely love about this space is like just the diversity in thinking. Maybe just to jump into a little bit of a different topic, a technology that's been around for some time, but feels like it's getting to production grade and enabling different types of applications, things like that. So ZK, Zero Knowledge Proofs, we uh, were investors in Lagrange. You can speak more to what Ishmael and the team are doing. But yeah, maybe ZKPs and what this infrastructure assuming we're getting closer to production grade, or maybe they're already, what kind of stuff does it unlock? And where does this fit within the monolithic modular type framing? I think the technology is magical. I also think it's largely, I don't want to say misunderstood, but people focus on a different component there where a lot of people focus on the ZK side, the zero knowledge side, you know, the uh, the ability to say, I have uh, uh, to prove that you have some information without revealing what that information is. That has some privacy properties, though it doesn't give you actually very strong privacy guarantees. But I think the more interesting part is actually the snark. It's the compression part of ZK. And I like to elevate the topic and and look at it as under the umbrella of verifiable compute. And this topic is not new. It's been around since probably the early cloud computing era where, you know, there were companies, you know, when they wanted some proof that data that they were receiving from a server was not tampered with. And the research in zero knowledge proofs as it relates to verifiable compute has been going on for for over a decade. And I think the difference is today there's much better algorithms and much better hardware to actually have the economics work at scale. What I like to frame ZK as, uh, ZKPs, is this might get too deep, but let's get deep. I'll, uh, I'll attempt it. Um, when you think about, you know, what makes up a computer, you have transistors and logic gates, and, and you have 
these AND gates and OR gates, and they effectively either let electrons pass or don't pass, and then you get these zeros and ones at the end. Super basic explanation. Uh, it turns out that you can represent these physical logic gates as mathematical equations. And that's a super mind-blowing concept that I, I think it took me two, three years to really understand. So what you can do is express a program as a set of mathematical equations, a lot of them, and effectively have a proof that says, I can prove that this output was run on this program by effectively providing a mathematical proof. So you are effectively turning code into math. And I think I, I like that framing more because it talks about more of like the verifiability and computational integrity rather than the, the, the privacy aspect. And I think it's really cool because when you think about what blockchains are, they're also verifiable computers, but they do verifiability in a different way. They do it with re-execution, with consensus. Everyone needs to re-execute the same stuff. And then you say what the majority, either uh, by some mechanism, you know, by stake weight, you know, do we agree that we all achieve the same output? And I think you might not even need to do all of that if you're just able to do the proof and then have others verify the proof. So then only one chunky machine needs to do the actual calculation and then everyone else will verify it. And I think it's a quite a different design, I think, than what we've historically seen with blockchains, but I think it's a super powerful technology. And, and frankly, I think it has implications that potentially span beyond blockchains themselves. But the initial use case for ZKPs, verifiable compute, has been more around the privacy side with Zcash. And what then happened was more around uh, computational compression, how I frame it, which is really L2s, ZK rollups. And now I think we're trying to figure out actually like after compression, what then? And I think there's uh, verifiability um, is another interesting component. And, and maybe that's where like Lagrange plays and a couple of other projects in the space, um, modulus labs on like the ZKML side, Axiom or like blockchain introspection. It's like, how can I reduce the compute that I do on chain by doing some compute off-chain and then providing a proof that says that that data or that computation was done correctly. So I frame it as you're effectively giving smart contracts superpowers. You know, and I think there's some really cool things that can enable um, potentially in DeFi, you can have uh, more complex uh, collateral management. Um, in gaming, you might be able to do more complex economic rebalancing. Yeah, so so I think there's still like a lot of the projects are going through the idea maze of, of figuring out like where they can use ZK. But I think verifiability is probably the next step, I suppose, that's particularly exciting to me for, for ZKPs kind of after the uh, partial privacy and, and, and compression use cases. Yeah. We've also seen, and you sort of hinted at it, the intersection of ZKPs 
in the lens of AI, right? For model integrity and things like that. We're large investors in Ritual. And, and it doesn't have to be in the ZKP framing, but intersection of crypto AI. If we were a traditional venture fund, all we would be talking about would be AI. We're lucky that you know we get to look at a bunch of different sectors and categories and things like that. But crypto AI, like what can we expect 24, 25 over these next few years? I think there's always a Venn diagram. You know, and when you look at the, you know, breakout companies like Uber, you, that has a lot of components under the hood. You know, there's the mobile phone, there's internet, there's GPS. These are all technologies that are weaved together to actually deliver a new experience. And I think there's going to be quite a large Venn diagram uh, between AI and crypto. I think the technologies actually serve as checks and balances to each other. I actually think AI is more of a philosophically more of a controlling technology and blockchains are more of a liberating technology. Yeah. yeah. So so I think from a societal perspective, I think they'll serve both important roles. You know, my prediction is, for example, in five years, 5% of the content online is going to be human generated. Like, we just won't know what's real. Yeah. And and in a place where you do not know what is real anymore, and it's it's already there if you look at, you know, a lot of the Gen AI content that's coming out, there is going to be a societal premium on humanness. And I think that's a bit different than with privacy because i unfortunately i don't think there is a societal there, uh, there's great societal importance placed on privacy or else no one would be using tiktok um but i think with verifiability that uh, and and humanness that is such a fundamental thing and blockchains and zk are very well suited to this so i think it almost rides the trend of generative ai you also hear like just tops down the calls for we can't rely on centralized AI and the paranoia around a select few number of companies basically dictating how AI is ushered in and deployed in the US but but globally. And it feels like the crypto meets AI is primed from a tops down standpoint. I think the open question is from a bottoms up standpoint, is it things like Unibot 2.0, Numerair 2.0. That seems like the low-hanging fruit from just a bottoms-up, what's going to come of this? I'd love to have a personal LLM. But yeah, like curious on how this comes to fruition from like a bottoms-up standpoint. Is it going to be a, a big infra-type play like Ritual that really ushers in you know, these net new applications? Is it going to be open AI, like shuts down their API devs building on it need an alternative. Yeah, walk me through on how you think it's going to play out. I like the weird use cases. I think it always starts out weird and fringe. Yeah. So, for example, I think people are becoming more and more lonely. You know, I think the pandemic was a big factor there, but I think, you know, as more of everyone's lives is hyper socialized, I think human loneliness is is going to continue to to increase. I think AI girlfriends are a very real future that that will happen. Yeah, you know, and maybe in different. Not for us, but oh for yeah, other no, people. I'm good. Yeah, but yeah, yeah I, I would never pay for one. Um, but if I did, maybe I want proof that this is my AI girlfriend, 
and and that's that like that's my model because I'm paying thirty dollars a month for her, you know. So so maybe I want some verifiability that this ML model is actually the one that I have trained uh, maybe on the text of my ex, and and I think there's probably a willingness to pay for that. I think another super weird one is religions. You know, what if someone trained an LLM on the Bible, you know, and then you have your AI Jesus, you know, and then you uh, you start to have a, a cult following, you know, do they want any verifiability guarantees that, that, that this deity that they're following is actually the one that, that they trained? And it happens, I think, in these fringe examples, and I think it becomes you know, more mainstream quicker than we thought, because I think at some point people thought it was weird to get into the cars of strangers and to be, yep. uh, to, to rent your house out to a stranger, but Uber and Airbnb are, are, are things. So, so social behavior sometimes change quicker than you expect. Yeah. We've talked a lot about different categories and ideas and some really wild ideas as an early stage crypto VC, like I think it's great to be thesis driven and almost have a sense of where the future may be going. But I think it's also you got to factor in the most compelling entrepreneurs are going to be the ones that create new markets or figure it out. And so, how do you think around just balancing, you know, looking for compelling teams in these particular categories versus just tracking very talented? folks in the crypto ecosystem. Totally. I think I have evolved my thinking. You know, I've been investing for six years, I suppose, in crypto. And I think I've evolved my thinking to be more founder driven than thesis driven over time. I think no investor really has a crystal ball. And and a lot of these trends happen out of the blue. And I think if you lean in too much on thesis, you become quite rigid. And I think there's also an ego involved for a lot of investors because they think they want to feel like they're right. And so if a founder says something that is not aligned with their thesis, I think they get a little hurt there. I am totally fine with in, with a founder coming to me and saying, here's why you're wrong and here's why I think the time is now. And I want to enable those founders and give them the resources and, and support to kind of have their worldview come to fruition. And I think thesis building, it's a good exercise. Mm -hmm. And I think it provides good guardrails. And and it's one that we do as well. But I think I've seen a lot of funds, I think, make the mistake of becoming so rigid that they will not look at an opportunity because it doesn't fit in that category. And I think it makes sense, you know, for an investor, like, like why they would do it. You see, you know, hundreds of opportunities a month and, and it takes a lot of brain power and everyone tries to look for shortcuts, you know, to, and it, it's very uh, evolutionary. You just want to burn less calories, you know? And so if you like, God forbid, you need to rethink a thesis that uh, they just spent, you know, three months developing, you know, maybe you just say, nope, doesn't align but maybe something was different there. And I think oftentimes it's actually the founder that's different. Yeah, I, I think that's spot on, something we talk a lot about here. And how you define founders, like these archetypes, our, our name archetype, it, it means something broader. I think something that 
we'll continue to build data around is, are there certain features that we can look out for that sort of foreshadow a entrepreneur's ability to build something remarkable, you know, sort of like cross the chasm or whatever it may be. I think it's something that we're going to continue to revisit over the coming months and years, but it's helpful framing to not lock yourself too much into particular categories while also balancing, you know, entrepreneurs and and timing and things like that. Mm-hmm. Anything else that we haven't discussed that you want to hit on, Dimitri? We've hit on a lot today. I think we hit on a lot. You know, maybe yeah, the last thing, you know, it's it's been good to be in New York and 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 obviously, you know, community is a big focus for us here. So if any listeners are based in New York or are visiting here, uh, hit us up. You yeah. Know, we'd love if, to 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 grab a coffee host you in our offices here in Soho. If you're lonely, you know where to reach us. (laughs) But uh, yeah, look, we're all in person. And I feel like this, we're very intentional around building community, get people in front of each other. There's, There's like so much to learn from each other as entrepreneurs and as investors. And like, I find that I learn every single day and I'm just able to do that faster in person. So yeah, I feel, uh, feel lucky to have someone like you, Dimitri, joining the team and, and you know, going to be a last of a few years ahead of us. Yeah, that's going to be fun. All right. With that, signing off. Thank you to the listeners for listening in and we'll see you on our next podcast. Cool. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Archibite presented by Archetype. We release new episodes every other Wednesday, so go catch up on any you've missed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to also follow us at Archetype VC on both Twitter and YouTube, and rate our show when you get a chance. For more information on the Archetype team and portfolio, go visit our website at archetype.fund.